Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning. Happy uh, summer's almost over. It's pretty sad. Don't be doing that. I know, I know, I know. Come on now. Hey, but good things are to come, all right? For those of you who've been holding out for pumpkin spice, we're almost there. I saw, what did I see? I was at the store, and I saw pumpkin decorations, and I was like, get out of here. If I bought a pumpkin and put it out on my porch right now, it would be melted in two days. So I don't know what they're thinking, but football's starting soon, so that's exciting. But if you're not a football fan, that's okay. I still love you. My name is Trey, and I get to be the pastor here, and um, I appreciate you uh, letting me take quite a few weeks off of teaching and letting other people use their gift of teaching to communicate to our church, uh, and it's been really fun to get to hear different perspectives, and, uh, and honestly, I got to work on some other stuff. Believe it or not, I don't just do this on Sunday for my week. A lot of other stuff I, we handle and do as a church, and so it gave me more margin to do some of that and also go on vacation, which was great. So... Thank you for that, uh, but I'm back, and before we get into James, I wanted to give us a little capital campaign building update. If this is your first Sunday, you're going to be clued in here, uh, but if you've been coming or you were a part of the last couple weeks, we had a pledge Sunday, and uh, we believe through lots of prayer and conversations that this space is and will be too small in the near future, uh, especially for kids, because you all just keep having babies. So that's, that's great, but a problem for us when we have to make sure the file, fire marshal is okay with how many kids are in a room. So uh, we are trying to adapt, and that part of that conversation was, hey, we should maybe look at buying this building across the street. So we're in talks with that. And so on Pledge Sunday, we uh, raised $363,000 by the end of this year, which is amazing. Uh, yeah, you can clap for that. Yeah, so... It's a lot of money in what would have been five months, because there's like four months now, I think, um, and uh, that clock is ticking for us as well. So, uh, But that is pledged money. It is not real until we receive it. And so we're walking down the path and just continuing down, looking at purchasing this property and trying to figure out what that looks like for us. My goal is to be as honest and transparent with you through the process. I don't have like an insane update or anything like that. We're still just trying to negotiating a lot of different things and market value appraisals and all that fun stuff. So... Uh, I will be sure to let you know, and we, I have better, more clear information, but at the end of the day, things like this just aren't always in our control, and that's okay. And so I'm just asking you to be praying for that. Um, we knew when we stepped into this building that a building is just a building, and um, it would be foolish to, to drive one end and say buildings don't matter at all. It would be foolish to drive the other end and say buildings are everything. We know the Old Testament had an important building, so buildings have uh, value, and they're helpful, and we want to be able to leverage that value uh, for the true deep value, which is Jesus. And so I hope that, that this journey is we're honoring that. So be praying for us. Uh, if you haven't uh, given or pledged and you feel convicted to, we'd love for you to do that and join us. Um, that would really help the numbers start to become more advantageous on our side. And, um, yeah, so I'm going to try to update you every, I don't know, five to six weeks, keep you in the loop on that. If you have any questions, you can let me know, Nathan know. We are not. We're an open book on that. So, Yeah. Let's turn to James, chapter 5, the last chapter of James. Uh, if you were trying to find it while Sarah was reading, you might still be trying to find it. It's kind of hard to find. It's only like three pages, you know? You can easily skip over it. 
And so uh, James 5, we're going to be in the first six verses. If you were here last week, you actually weren't here, unless you were, I'm, I'm sorry. We were at the park uh, because the Grandview Yard decided to run around our building, literally, uh, for a mar- half marathon. So we met in the park, and it was great, and we all enjoyed the sun, and, too much sun, and sweated, and enjoyed being outside. And Lindsay, a wonderful Lindsay, taught us about passion and pride and just how uh, we don't have the right to judge others, and it kind of brought us into today. Now, one of the things that she talked about was how James talks about our lives just being very short, right? very temporary in light of eternity. It's very little blimp on the radar, and they use the analogy in the Bible of being like a mist or a vapor. right? You're there one moment, and then you're gone the other. And so that's kind of the first part of today, is this idea of the, the temporality of, of, of our lives on earth, right? and everything in the earth is temporary. Uh, and then today is kind of bringing the temporary of our identity into what it looks like with wealth. So we're going to talk about wealth today. It's an exciting week for me to come back and talk about money. Uh, but if you're into the Bible Project, I'm a big fan of the Bible Project, this is a, a snippet of the video of James talking about the two passages and how they sort of reconcile each other. And so Lindsay taught on the passage on the left uh, and about the arrogance of wealth and kind of planning our lives and judging others based on that and all those type of things. And then today, specifically, we're talking about the danger of it when we let it control us. But if you look at the bottom, it says, see Matthew 6, see Matthew 6. James, when he's writing, he's a half-brother of Jesus. He's in a large family. He, he's Torah-observant Jew, meaning he knows the Torah. He follows the rules, right? He is writing to these churches in the book of James, trying to help them understand what it means to follow Jesus, or, and are we still Jewish? Do we still follow Jewish laws? If they're a Gentile, which isn't a Jew, how do they follow Jesus? And so he's trying to reconcile all that. And what he's doing with this book, and you'll notice, is he's quoting a ton of Jesus um, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' biggest sermon in Matthew 5 through 7. He also uses a lot of Proverbs, and, but he never explicitly quotes it. Like He's not like, end quote, and he like, gives exactly. He just sort of paraphrases it, and he uses the spirit and the ideas of Jesus into his teaching. And so today, you're going to see in a little bit a very, very obvious uh, paraphrase, which is what the Bible Project is talking about. And so as we get into this uh, today, we talk about, okay, like, what does this mean for us as we read the book of James? And we've communicated throughout several weeks that James is probably the most action-oriented book in the Bible. Uh, If you're looking to just sit on your couch and read and feel good, James is not the book for that. Uh, James is like, you read it and you're like, oh, shoot. And you put your Bible down and go do that thing. Like, that is how James is written. It is to go do things. And the beauty about the Bible is we can focus on action for a while, but we know that action isn't everything. We can focus on thinking and feeling, right? We talk about how all that relationship matters. Um, But over the last several weeks and a few more weeks, we're just focusing on action uh, and how action, what you do does matter, right? The, the common maxim of, like, you aren't what you do, right, who you are. Who you are is, is actually a lot of what you do, right? Like, that is a part of your life. And to discredit that, James would just be confused. So uh, as we get into wealth and talking about wealth, um, the last verse in chapter 4, right before chapter 5, is a very important verse. In fact, this verse, I think, defines sin at another dimension, and the reason why is because if you've grown up in the church or you've heard things about church, you've like, or you've heard of like the Ten Commandments, right? You think about sin is something uh, that you shouldn't do that you do. It's like, okay, like I, I, I stole from this gas station. I committed a sin. I committed adultery. committed a sin, right? I murdered someone. Sin, right? And you sort of chalk it up to these things that you shouldn't do. Well, James 4, 17 
kind of adds a whole other level to sin. It says, so whoever knows what is good to do and does not do it is guilty of sin. Which means that just as much as what you shouldn't do, right, and focusing on that and what you, if you do these things could be sin, it's just as much that as it is what you know you should do and you don't do. Which means that the more that we know as Christians, the more liable we are. And what it does is it gives us a better understanding about sin because sin to us is typically just this like very simple, one-dimensional, I, do, I don't do these things, God loves me or likes me more, and I, if I do these things, I'm a failure, and I need to go to God and be grateful for his grace. Like, that's a very one-dimensional way of thinking about it. But if we think of sin as the true definition, which is any mark off of perfection of righteousness, any mark, no matter how far, right, off the mark, then we start to realize, wow, we have a lot more sin in our life. We've just been categorizing it in different depths. Sin can be just a subtle thing that you knew you should do that you didn't do, which is, I don't know about you, you're like, oh, that's overwhelming then. I guess I have a lot to be accountable for because uh, I didn't murder anyone, but I definitely was really angry at this person for cutting me off earlier today. And Jesus would say, well, if you committed anger in your heart, then you committed murder, Right? Sin, and when we talk about it, has much deeper roots. And it's important to know this, not to be, feel more guilty, but to understand how truly needy we are of Jesus and how wealth specifically is so insidious in the way that it creeps into our lives. And so today is like, a, it, Sarah read it. It's a, it's a pretty intense passage. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that some churches are not excited about teaching this passage, mainly because we try to figure out what is, like, who is rich and what does that mean in light of us. But if you've been a part of our church for very long or you're new, I'm here to tell you, like, uh, we're not, we don't really pull punch. Like, we're not, we're just going to talk about it. And, uh, like, you doing you is not necessarily, like, something we're about. We are a community and a family of faith. And so we want to help each other grow. We want to hold each other accountable. We want to be humble. And uh, so this is one of those passages where, I just think that's going to be best understood is we all, myself included, have a call and understanding to figure out the wealth that God's given us and what we do with it. And so in in verse 1, let's just jump in. Come now, you rich. Weep and cry aloud over the miseries that are coming to you. It's pretty intense. Like I said, uh, weep and cry, not very fun words. Some translations say wail or lament or mourn. Uh, and, and so what we got to do immediately, and I'm going to help you figure this out, right when you read this, what you're going to do is in your brain, you're going to be like, wow, that's pretty intense. And so you're going to try to determine, am I rich? Because if I'm not, then this passage is for someone else, right? Like, it's for the Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, shame on them, you know? And you're like, I feel good. I can read this passage. But if, heaven forbid, you're rich and you read this, you're like, well, shoot. This is some extremely intense, strong, aggressive language. And then you're like, ugh, Right? And so we have to answer the question, am I rich, which is a very long dialogue that I don't have time for. And so here's what I like to say. Are you rich in what, in what terms, right? In terms of the world, yes. You know, we're like in the top, what, 1% or 2%, most of us, of the world's wealth. We have plans and ideas and can afford things that most people in the world cannot. In America, maybe. Most people would say uh, that it's subjective to who they're around, meaning if a bunch of wealthy people are around a bunch of wealthy people, they all think they're middle to middle upper class, even though they're all upper class, because they're seeing everyone around them and thinking that's a normal lens, right? Same with people in the middle class. And even lower class, they, they, they all are relative to, ho- to who they're around, and we start to gravitate towards people like that, and then it feels more comfortable. So rich can be relative, 
Because if I'm in a really wealthy neighborhood, but I'm the poorest person on the block, I might still be objectively pretty wealthy, but if my car is not near as cool as everyone else's cars, right, I feel poor. Same with if you are in a poor neighborhood and you make good money and you got a re redone house and everyone else's houses are dumps, but your house is still worth a third of a rich neighborhood, right, you still feel like you're king of the castle. And so it's all relative to who we're around, our environment, and, and I think if we have a worldly perspective, I think we can answer, yeah, we're probably pretty rich. So for the sake of the next 20 minutes, I would like you, if possible, to assume that you are indeed rich. Okay, can you do that for me? Even if you're like, Trey, you haven't seen my college debt. Just assume you're rich, all right? Just trust me, it'll be helpful. All right, let's just, let's just humble ourselves today. James would love that, that's his language. And what I'm gonna do though is when you think about this, am I rich, I'm gonna encourage you with one thing, and, and this is really important and I need you to know this. The Bible talks a lot about money, a lot about wealth, and a lot of people teach it as though it is intrinsically evil to be wealthy. And that is just not true. My, one of my um, scholars I've been reading, his name's Douglas Moon, he put this in a really good perspective. And he said, most times when the Bible talks about wealth, riches, and excess, it is rarely condemning the wealth itself, but the misuse of wealth. Now, a lot of times, you know, in the Bible, to become wealthy, you may have done a lot of shady things. Okay, so let's, that's fine. But in general, when the Bible's talking about wealth, it is not saying having wealth is intrinsically evil or bad. It is the misuse of wealth, which means two things. One, if you are wealthy, stop feeling guilty. You, you should not feel guilty if you have money. That, that, the Bible does not say that. Number two, even if you have a little bit of money, you're not off the hook, which is, I think, actually far harder for a lot of us. Meaning, if you make $10,000 a year and you have $10 in your bank account, you have wealth, and you have to determine how to steward it and not misuse it. Because the biblical narrative of God's heart towards people is that he cares just as much about one little widow's copper mite as he does about someone's numerous money bags. So what you have in your wealth that God has given you is just as important as if it's $10 or it's $100,000. And so what this does is I think it eliminates a lot of false guilt that people throw at people, but it makes us realize that we all have a need to, to, to understand and to look at the wealth that we have that God has given us and figure out, are we misusing it? So every one of us has to ask this question, myself included. And, and what Jesus is doing and James is echoing in this passage is saying, hey, wealth intrinsically is not evil, but wow, is it dangerous? That's what he's saying. It's the same reason why when, you know, I'm counseling a couple who's dating, I say, yeah, like, sure, you can stay at their house till 3 a.m., but wow, is that dangerous. Like, you're just going to make bad decisions. So, like, sure, you can stay there, and God's like, okay, but you're just playing with fire. And that's why later in this passage, James will get to the point where money is essentially fire. It is lighting a little match, and all of a sudden, you just burned a fourth of California down, and you're in jail forever, right? That's what happens. So the same way money is incredibly dangerous. And so is it possible that you and you're crying out to the Lord, I need more money for these things, I'm struggling, I'm stressed. Is it possible that God is actually sparing you? The, the, the weight of having more money and having to discern and be a greater steward. Is that possible? I would even argue maybe you don't deserve more money. Maybe you haven't been faithful and a good steward with the money God's given you. Now this isn't prosperity gospel. This is just how God looks at our resources. It doesn't matter how much you have, like I said. It just matters, am I stewarding what God has given me? This is the parable of the talents. If you read it, one guy got one talent, one guy got talents of 
form of money. One talent, five talents, ten talents. The God leaves, comes back, and then the guy with five talents makes five more. The guy with ten makes ten more. The guy with one buried it in a hole because he was afraid and he didn't trust the landowner and didn't do anything with it. And so what does the landowner say? Give me that talent. I'm giving it to this guy because he stewarded what I gave him well. And the same blessing with that amount of money was the same blessing he gave to the guy with five. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It matters are you stewarding it or are you misusing it. And so whether you're, uh, like I said, a teacher or whether you are the president, you have a calling as a follower of Jesus to steward money. I think about one of the few people who walked away from Jesus' beautiful call and is the rich young ruler. If you remember that story, he comes and he's like, what do I need to do? And, you know, Jesus says, all these things. I have done all these things. And he's like, great, you're doing great. Go sell all your stuff. Give the money to the poor and come follow me. And what does the rich young ruler do? He looks down, he's sad, and he realizes he just can't do it. He can't part with the money. Was Jesus being critical of him having money? Or was he calling him to do something with his money that he didn't want to do? If you start a tech startup and you're a millionaire, good, great, good for you. You worked hard. Maybe you have really good skills. God's given you that blessing. But what you do with that is the thing that Jesus will hold you liable for. And in that moment, that young ruler is too dangerous. He played with the money too long. He couldn't handle the understanding of removing that aspect of what probably was his identity and just following Jesus poor. And so for us, I think we have to discern through, okay, like, what, it, what does this look like when we talk about rich, right? Because, you know, in this terms, there was clearly rich oppression. You know, people were being taken advantage of. Maybe we don't deal with that as much nowadays. Today, you could start a startup and become really wealthy really quick and not play ethical games. Like, you could be a good person and do that. Back then, you either had money if you had a rich family or you did a bunch of shady things and you slaves. That was kind of how you were rich. So most rich people got that way through typically not great means. However, most of the New Testament is written uh, based on lots of wealthy people. Like Lydia, Lily started the original church in her house. She's like, I got a big house. I got lots of snacks. Why don't you guys all come over here, right? That's what happened. Uh, there was probably, I, I can't know the exact number, only a few handful of people who supported Paul with large amounts of money. Basically, these rich people were like, we believe in you, Paul. Here you go. Go do this ministry. And he writes all the letters, does all the missionary journeys. Wealth was used to further the kingdom. And, and so there's, there's a really cool beauty in, in the opportunity for us to steward our wealth and to be generous and to not misuse it. Uh, and I think about this in, in our world today and, like, the, the idea of the lottery. If you, like, follow, I, I, sometimes I like to follow, someone wins, like, $300 million, and then I just want to be like, okay, tell me what they're doing in six months. I really want to know. And it's actually devastatingly sad. Uh, most of them are not doing well. Uh, if people win small amounts of money, like $20,000 or under 50 was kind of their like, metric, sometimes it does make their life a little bit better. But when they win, win large amounts, people just go crazy. Uh, there's a guy who specializes, his name's Don McNay, he specializes in water, consulting, financial consulting for lottery winners. He wrote a book called Life Lessons from the Lottery. And he said most winners end up unhappy or broke. They commit suicide, they run through their money, they go through divorce, they die. Relationships are incredibly strained. It's just bad. Now, he told a tale of a guy in Kentucky, um, and he won $27 million in 2001, and he spent it on drugs, fast cars, and a Learjet. And then he was living in a storage unit within five years and died penniless. Sounds like he was playing too much Grand Theft Auto. He's like, I'm just going to buy a jet. This will be great. And then realize you have to have insurance on said jet, and that's very expensive. But that's the truth, right? Like, we think, oh, it'll be great. 
it'll be great. But is it possible God is sparing you from you having to steward that wealth that maybe your pride cannot handle? Because if there is one idol that will be more insidious and more dangerous than any other idol, it is money. People say, well, no, it's popular, it's fame, sex, and money. It's not. Money gets you sex and fame. I mean, think about it. If you're rich, you can make your own TV show and you can be famous. You could have somebody write songs and edit your voice and there you go. You're a famous musician. You can sleep with whoever you want for the right amount of money, right? If you have money, you can do whatever you want. And people know that. When you walk into a room, they're like, oh, so-and-so's here, right? I hope he takes me out to Cameron Mitchell. It'd be great, right? That's what you think, even subconsciously. Money is incredibly powerful, and though it intrinsically in itself is not bad, it has the ability to consume our hearts and our desire, and before we know it, we're like the rich young ruler who's like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing all the right things, and then Jesus is like, okay, go do this, and you're like, nope, I stopped there. Walks away devastated because his world that he had created was shattered by Jesus' call. So let's look into verse 4, and this is where uh, it's, it's going to, or sorry, uh, verse 2 and 3, it's going to start to look very... Um, similar to maybe something you've read. If you've been with us at least two years, and I'm saying that because almost exactly two years ago, Joel Trainer, who's one of our elders, he's the pastor at Three Creeks Church, they helped plant us. He taught on this passage in Matthew. Uh, it's, almost, it's very similar. And so uh, verse 2 says, and I'm going to read James, and then I'm going to read Matthew, and you'll see the similarities. Verse 2 says, Your riches have rotted, your clothing has become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness Against you. It will consume your flesh like fire, and it is in the last days that you have hoarded treasure. Now, Matthew 6:19 says, Do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I've talked about this verse. Joel taught on it. Um, and then what's funny is when he taught on it, he, ta- he talked about, he talked about um, the uh, Vax a million at the time, where you got like a million dollars. You could win a million dollars if you got uh, a vaccine shot. And he was like talking about, do you really want a million dollars? Can you steward that well? And so the same idea in thinking is in James right now. And it's this idea that riches will rot, right? Things that we ascribe our worth to will rot. But what's really interesting, if you're a grammar nerd and you're reading James, you've noticed that it says, it says rotted. It doesn't say will rot. It's already rotted, which doesn't make any sense. You're like, I've got clothes. They don't have moth holes in them, which I don't even know. Has that ever even happened to any of you? Have you ever had moths eat holes in your clothes? No, I don't know. I guess it's a thing. I don't know. It's weird, but um, it, it's weird because you're like thinking rot, rotted means it's already happened. And so what James is saying is wealth is not just the things you have rotting, but it is the way at which you got the things. It is what you do with them and how you use those for the kingdom, which means that your brand new, shiny, perfect sports car that's sitting in your garage never to be used or stewarded is actually rotted, even though physically it's not. Because it's not having any eternal value. It is mere temporary. So there, it is possible that the things that we have, though shiny and clean and taken well care of, are rotted because of what the worth they have is, 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 is meaningless. It's temporary. And so for us, that's convicting because obviously, you know, people back then, how do you, how do you show status, your, your purple fancy clothes and your money? Nowadays, there's lots of things that we can do to show our wealth, right? But all of these things are temporary. 
I was trying to look it up. I'm, I'm not a huge science nerd, but uh, believe it or not, gold will rust eventually. I don't know how long, thousands of years, I don't know. But everything on this earth is temporary. Some is like very temporary. Like you buy an avocado, that thing's bad the next day. But some, you put, don't put it beside your bananas, I learned that. Um, some things though, your house, you might not deal with the carnage of that house falling over in 400 years or being demoed for another a condo apartment in Grandview, right? Or whatever. You're not going to deal with that, but it is temporary. It is temporary. Everything we have is temporary. Even the legacy you leave your family, those things are all temporary because none of those things will make it to heaven. And so what we use and how we utilize wealth matters if it's those things are corroding our heart and distracting us and in some ways weakening our ability to actually focus on what really matters. So verse 4 uh, James shifts gears here, and, and this is where the, the scholars all argue about, like, who is he talking about when he's talking about rich? Because some people would say, well, it's not Christians, it's the rich oppressors who were oppressing Christians, which we know is happening at this time. Uh, other people would argue, no, it is rich oppressors and rich Christians and Christians. Other people would say, no, it's just rich Christians. I don't know. There's a lot of really smart guys out there. I think the safest translation and understanding is that it is rich people. There are rich oppressors who are taking advantage of Christians. There are also rich Christians who are taking advantage of Christians in the church and influence and getting to sit at the places they want to sit at and getting to make decisions. So it's safe to say all of the, all of the rich have this potential to misuse wealth. But in this verse, he's, he's bringing it to these rich landowners, and he says, look, you've pay, the pay you've held back from your workers who mowed your fields cry out against you. And here's the bad part. The cries of the reapers have reached the very ears of the Lord of hosts. Which means that your richness, right, your, your misuse of wealth is not just a you and a that person problem. It has gotten to the Lord, and that is not a good thing. You do not want the Lord angry at you. And, it's, and that's why he's like, weep and mourn, right? And the best, the best word is actually wail, but the NET chooses to not use that because... None of us use the word whale, except we're like, you know, how many whales? Where were they, right? We don't understand the word whale. So that was better this service. Last service is like, didn't get it. I don't know, but it's all right. It happens. We don't use whale, but whale always implies, in this context this century, all that, uh, it implies repentance. And so you don't whale unless you're essentially turning from something or you're seeing a reality and you're shifting, right? Uh, a U-turn is repentance, Right? It's like, oh, make a U-turn. You're turning away from, right? Turning back the other way. Wailing implies that. And so he's saying, you who are rich, wail. Acknowledge what you are doing and what it is doing to you. And then acknowledge what it is doing to the people around you. Is it possible that your misuse of wealth is actually affecting the people around you? Some of us would say, absolutely, when I, when I shop for clothes online that are from a company that has no fair wages and slave labor and all that, right? And, and we could, it's easy to kind of fight that because... Um, or to, to put that up there because we all have to deal with buying clothes like that, which it sucks, honestly, that we have to deal with that because it's really hard to just buy $90 shirts, right? And like expensive, I mean, it's just expensive to not do that. But are there people in our lives here who are explicitly dealing with the ramifications of us misusing our wealth? Now, this is a dangerous statement because what it could be implying is that if I'm not generous, I'm hurting people. And that sounds pretty crazy, right? But what if that's true? What if you read the entire Old Testament 
And God creates this group of people that are the prototype of how humans should interact with one another. And what if in all of that, he, the most laws that he had was about protecting and being generous and serving the sojourner, the person who shouldn't belong there, whether they murdered someone in another territory or they didn't have their citizenship or they were walking through the territory. What if God did that? Because he did. If you were at a retreat last year, we talked about money and God's heart for generosity and stewardship. And in the Old Testament, there's a lot of things that don't apply today. That's fine, whatever, different, different week. But he is deeply concerned with how money in a culture affects everyone in it. And he set up laws and structures and rules so that people wouldn't use money for wealth to misuse it and to control powers. He wanted everyone. This isn't socialistic. This isn't communism. This is, Jesus, this is God of the Old Testament saying, I want to care for every person. Every person is valuable in my eyes. And whether they make no money or they make tons of money, everybody has an opportunity to survive and to thrive in this community. And what did the Israelites do? Exactly what we do. Some people got lots of money and were like, this is awesome. And then they took advantage. David kind of took advantage. Solomon, the wisest man ever, had the three most things you shouldn't, God said, don't have. Chariots, which are like tanks. Wives, which I don't need to say much on that one. And wealth. Literally, someone's like, I got them all, right? And God's like, what are you doing? The opposite. Get rid of the tanks. Get rid of the wives. Get rid of the wealth, right? That is our heart is we, we want power. We want control. And God is not having it. And so in this passage, what I love about this is it comforts the poor and it shows that God's heart is for the poor, but it also convicts us because it makes us realize not only am I misusing my wealth, it has, it has an impact on the people around me. Uh, the, the book of uh, Sirach, which is in the Apocrypha, which is in the Catholic canon, but I thought this was, was profound. It says, to take away a neighbor's living is to commit murder. To take away a neighbor's living is to commit murder. Now read verse 5 and 6. You have lived indulgently and luxurious on earth. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, and you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, although they do not resist you. Now, look, are you a rich landowner who's, like, not paying people who need to survive? Probably not, right? Are you neglecting the homeless guy and not giving him a cheeseburger and being like, he'll be fine, maybe? But the rub of all of this for us, because this is James, we've got to internalize this, right? The rub for all this is our wealth is not just about us. It's about everyone around us. And what an amazing opportunity that we get to steward wealth in such a way that it can be kingdom realities for every single person around us. That $10 tip that you leave at Waffle House because you're there for some reason could change that server's life, and you'll never even know about it. But it was $10. Could you do it for $10? What about $100? What about $1,000? Could you give someone a new car? Could you... Get, uh, pay off someone's loans or credit card debts, the bad decisions that they made, right? This is the type of stuff that makes eternal value, and we all have the opportunity to do that. Now, if you have more money, I'm sorry, you have more energy that you have to spend on that because you can do more things. And that's definitely a burden, but I think you can handle it, and that's the danger of more money is not always better, right? But for those of us who have a little bit, it still matters. We've got to figure out how we want to steward that well, right? Whether we can put $20 to a missionary or 2000 you still have to make that heart decision. And so as we sum this up, James is saying God knows, one, how you are letting wealth destroy your heart. He knows what you're doing and how you're feeling about it and decisions you're making, good or bad. Two, he knows that it can potentially hurt others by not being generous, by withholding what is to be the gospel Israelite nation of generosity 
that it actually affects the world because there are bad people. We're all bad people. There are really bad people in the world. Our generosity has the ability to offset that. And the third one is he sees the hearts and the cries of the poor who need help. He is their defender and their fortress, and he's the fortress for them, and he sees that. And so are we pursuing luxury? Are we pursuing things that are just all about us that have temporary feeling? So I want to wrap up. Uh, we always do this. Every Sunday we enter into a time of formation, and our goal is to not create consumers but contributors, and this is one of the ways we do that because it involves you participating and engaging. So we have four ways we can do that. Number one is Sarah shamelessly plug. We have people in the back who'd love to pray for you, praise or prayers. We'd love to have you be prayed for, uh, anything about this or life. Uh, number two, we have giving. We have a box in the back. Most people give online, but you, you can give checks and cash back there, and uh, that's, I've said enough about money. Uh, number three, uh, bread and cup is also there, and so we offer that for anybody who follows Jesus to partake in that as a reminder of the symbol of what Jesus has done for us, uh, and it is gluten-free in both places. And then the fourth thing, which is probably going to be the biggest chunk that we're, we're leaning into today, is reflection. Normally, we teach, and then you just get some time to process I, I, I felt convicted of writing this and being like, this is James. I've got to have him do something. You know, it's action-oriented. And so what I did was I created a list of reflection questions, and I created a list of action items. And I'm just going to read them like a spitfire, and then they're going to cycle through them during reflection time so that you can process. But I, I just want to encourage you, God already knows. You're not hiding it from him. You might be hiding it from us. Good job. But that doesn't really matter because my opinion is not God's. But... God knows, and in these questions, would you draw out the stirring you have, and and I I would hope, reflect deeply and find application, because what we do does matter. And some of these things, I actually think we could do and see immense fruit from. So, reflection questions, here we go. Questions to ponder. Do I consider myself rich? Do I have temporary wealth that I am aware of? Why or why not? Do I honor God with the stewarding and internal prioritization of the wealth that he has given me? Example, do I consistently use my time, talents, and treasures for others, especially those who can't give me anything in return? Do I support my local church? Do I, contrast church, do I support uh, those missionaries, parachurch ministries like Young Life, Crew, all that type of stuff? Number three, do I consistently and accurately reflect on the rest of the country and also the world's wealth and climate around greed and money? Meaning, am I aware of what the culture is doing to my own understanding of wealth, stewardship, and generosity? And if so, what are lies that I'm believing and living into? Number four, do I want to live as a good steward or generous person because of the beauty and generosity found in the gospel? Or do I do it because of guilt or other people's opinion of me or status? Ouch, that one, that one stings. Number five, do I make dumb financial decisions? Do I primarily make decisions based on others, on impulse or dopamine hits? Do I have trauma around money which has justified me to avoid financial maturity? And if so, what am I doing to heal and to move forward? So that's the questions. Then the action ideas, these are just tons of ideas I thought of that I was like, these would be helpful. Number one, I think is most important, create a vision for how you want to make eternal differences with what God has given you. Not others, you. Who do you want to support and how could the wealth God has given you create eternal value? What does it look like? Number two, make a budget with eternal value as your priority. I remember our cohort, our apprenticeship cohort, the guys last year sat down, and we all just like shared our budgets. It was very interesting. 
uh, if you've never done that, it was interesting. And, uh, and it was not as far as I was there. And I didn't feel any sense of condemnation or guilt or any sort of like pride, like, look how much I'm giving, right? But it was so encouraging to know, look, we care deeply and we are willing to humble ourselves to let others speak into our financial situation, encourage us, ask questions, help us dialogue about what it means to be generous because we want to lead with generosity as leaders. Number three, share your wealth, idols, fears, tensions with a wise person, pastor, counsel. Number four, um, Sarah and I are doing this one, which will be interesting. Uh, plan a no-spend week or month. It's a spending fast. Basically, you only buy like groceries and like things. If you need a new phone charger, sorry, your phone's dead for the next two weeks. Um, delete, or you can borrow one, heaven forbid. Uh, number five, delete shopping apps off your phone. Or if you have like impulse late night, just put screen time. You can't buy stuff after 9 p.m. because we all have brains the size of babies at, at 11 p.m. Uh, number six, avoid places which have zero care for the fair treatment of, and wages of people. That one I'm still trying to iron out because it is very hard to live like that. Uh, number seven, I think if you're part of our church, give to your church. If you go to another church, give to that church. It's your, it's your home. You're part of family and you're part of contributing to what that church is doing and creating eternal impact. Number eight, if you're like Sarah and I, we pledged a large number that we have to give at the end of the year and we currently don't have it, which means we have to save and stick on a budget and say no to lots of things. And so... If that's you, just be encouraged about the, seeing the value in that. Number nine, read a book on actual good pr- biblical principles on wealth. I put actual good because a lot of them aren't very good and very just not right. Uh, so if you need a recommendation, let me know. Or a de-recommendation. I could do that as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, number ten, study the Bible about God's heart for generosity like we did at the retreat. Like reading through God's heart for the Old Testament principles even though a lot of them don't apply today, they still have a beauty in what God was doing. Number 11, last one, set, uh, or sorry, number 11, set and place marital or close friend accountable principles or even a covenant, like a promise. Meaning, I'll, only talk, I'll talk to my spouse if I ever want to spend $50 over an unbudgeted item or something like that. Or if you have a friend, you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you if I want to spend 500 or 1,000 or whatever on, on a hobby that I don't need to spend. I'm going I'm to tell you guys about it and you guys can weigh in on it, you know, whatever, right? That those type of things will really help you. You'll be shocked at the decisions you'll make after you bring other people into your circles. Number 12 and last one, sell stuff or give it away. Uh, by, t- by continually selling or giving stuff, you're reminding yourself that you don't really need as much or you don't even really need it. So those are a lot. I hope that some of those stir in you. My goal today is that you will take an action idea and run with it and that hopefully the Lord and the Spirit is prompting something in your heart um, in a way that is about the wealth that we use. Because at the end of the day, it's not about, not about like, me making you feel guilty. It's not about even like, you just being like, I give more money now. It's about us deeply understanding the power of money, how each of us have wealth, and what we do with it. Myself included, I have to make the same decisions that all of you guys make. If not, harder, because everyone can stare at me and be like, oh, those are nice shoes. Like, where did you get those, right? So I get it just like you, and I will reflect just like you. We're going to take some time, and then we're going to close in one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.